Well, good morning. One of the uh, tactical advantages I enjoy in Nebraska, if I, whether preaching at Emmaus or preaching at a, a different church, is that people spend the first half really listening carefully to try to figure out where I'm from. And they're, they're listening and going. Uh, whereas in Massachusetts, we tend to take the eyes off the words. I know where they landed. They landed in Nebraska because <laughs> they put them in the words. Uh, so uh, if if your clothes get dirty, you need to put them in the washer. Uh, just in the middle, the, the football coach is Osborne. He did the arrows just thrown in there. It, it's amazing what happens. But people wonder, are you? They don't come in contact with people from New England very often, and they ask, like, "Are you from? Are you from England? Are you from Australia?" It's all this stuff, and they think you're really smart because you talk different. And so uh, now I can't fool you guys, right? Just. <laughs> Just some knucklehead from Lemonster down the road. So, uh, anyway, uh, it is good to be here this morning. Uh, last night we talked about the context of the Great Commission. So, the Great Commission being everything for us to be thinking about evangelism. The Great Commission is in Matthew 28, verses 19 to 21. And we'll revisit those that those verses this morning and and just continue to kind of push off of that pivot out of the Great Commission. But if we think about the the content of what we speak about, we're really thinking about the content of who we speak about. So when we talk about evangelism, we're talking about the good news. And the good news is about Jesus. So it's vitally important that we think about who Jesus is. And that's what we want to do this morning in this first talk, is to think about who Jesus is. I want to think a little bit about who we are, which we talked about last night, and who they are, that is who the unbelievers are. And this is a uh, this is informational, uh, but also I think uh, calibrating. It helps us to think about really what we're doing, who we're doing it for, and who we're talking with. Um, so I guess the goal for this morning, uh, one would be to make you be more impressed with Jesus Christ from the Scriptures. Second would be that you would embrace and even um, be excited about your identity as a missionary, as a Christian, and third, that you would have particular compassion for those who don't know Jesus. And so those are our three, I think, kind of goals for this first talk. Uh, So let's ask the question, who is Jesus? We should know that that's not uh, an irrelevant question. It seems like everybody is talking about Jesus. If you are typing Jesus into Google, you are going to get 350,000 news stories from the, the last time that I checked it. 350,000 news stories on Google News. Over 1 billion pages returned for Jesus. And when I check Twitter to see who and what people are talking about, there are thousands of people tweeting about Jesus every minute. Jesus isn't only filling up web pages, news articles, and tweets. He's also in music and in film. If you just throw on Spotify or Apple Music and you click on any genre of music and you just pick through, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing, um, just kind of picking any type of music. But if you did pick through different types of music, you would hear people singing about Jesus, whether it's country music or indie rock or heavy metal or any type of hip-hop. People are talking about Jesus. It seems like Jesus' name is as common uh, as 
like a Nike sign at an athletic event. It's everywhere. It's almost assumed. Nobody talks about who he actually is. His name is just kind of like that Nike sign. It's there. It's just, oh, that's, that's Nike. Oh, that's, that's Jesus. But who is Jesus? There are probably as many views about Jesus as daily tweets about him. Who is he to you? Who is he to me? The question is really important, and obviously it's important for us because we want to we want to give the mic to Jesus, right? We want Jesus to be able to say, hey, this is who I am. We want God in His Word to say, this is who Christ is. So when we think about who Jesus is, we want to make sure that we're doing justice and being faithful to who Christ is. In fact, one of the things that we're doing in evangelism is actually helping to see helping people to see who Jesus really is. That's what we're doing. So you see how vitally important it is, not only on the outside that there's massive confusion about who Jesus is, but it's really important from our perspective in terms of faithfulness to God that we get the Gospel right and and we communicate it with clarity. So that's what we want to do this morning. Maybe just some some headers to think about who Jesus is. And I I don't expect any of this to be for, for most of us here this morning. You say, oh, wow. I didn't realize that Jesus was God in the flesh. Right? You know that, but this is just a reminder, a reminder of who He is so that you find yourself encouraged and perhaps equipped to think it through. So the first is who is Jesus? He's God in the flesh. So let's just think about this. When we think about Jesus, we, we have to think of Him in terms of two natures. There's two natures in Christ. So He's eternal Son of God. He existed throughout all eternity as the second person of the Trinity. So He's 100% God. And then He becomes man. He's born of the Virgin Mary and becomes man. So He's holy man. The Bible would teach that Jesus is both God and man. So we have verses where where Jesus is in the flesh, walking about people in John chapter 8. And He tells the, the, the Pharisees before Abraham was... I am. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Now, that befuddled those people. How in the world can you be before Abraham yet you're here? I mean, how in the world? You're, they said, you're not yet 50 years old. How can this be? We don't understand this concept. We know from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we see verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten of God. So we see that He's in the beginning with God, yet He becomes man. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, we see that all creation, everything that has been made, was made by Him, through Him, and for Him. And then indeed He sustains, He puts everything, keeps everything together. All the way to the point where we get to chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians says, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Him. That is to say that this man, that was God became a man, this Jesus, this man, was also fully divine. So when when we talk about Jesus, we want to emphasize both His humanity and His divinity. So let's just ask the question, just from a standpoint, because this is a great evangelism question. You're talking to people and they say, is Jesus God? Is He man? And you say, yes, he's, he's both. And they say, well, why? Why would, why would Jesus have to be human 
like us? That's a really good question. That indicates that somebody's probably listening to what you're saying and asking you, why does he have to be human? Well, simply the fact is that we're humans and we broke God's law. So we sinned against God and God has determined it that by man's sin has come, so therefore by man sin must be paid for. So in order for sin to be paid for, God had to have a man who was able to identify with us and pay the penalty that needed to be paid. But here's the issue. No man, no simply man, could pay that that penalty because the wrath of God would utterly consume him and he would be destroyed. So there you you see the, the, the necessity for both God and man. That Jesus is man so that he can identify with us in our weakness and do everything that we should have been able to do but we didn't or couldn't or wouldn't. And to be fully God, that is to bear the awful weight of God's eternal wrath. So you see the, the beautiful marriage between divinity and humanity. Michael the archangel couldn't be our Savior. He's not divine. He's not man. Only Christ. So he's God in the flesh. And the second is that he's the resurrected king. Now we saw that in the Great Commission where Jesus is resurrected from the dead and he says, I have all authority, all power. So he's risen from the dead. Now what does that indicate? If you think about that that reality, I mean, just from a standpoint of a, a proof of everything. When, when somebody says, uh, I, need, I need proof, that the Bible is true. For me, the ultimate proof is what did Jesus believe? Because He was raised from the dead. And whatever He believes about the Bible is true and right because He's God. Because only God can be raised from the dead. Because no man has power to defeat death. The cemeteries are a living testimony to that fact. Christ is God in the flesh. He rose from the dead. He's the resurrected King. But He's also the one who tells the truth as the Lord, the King. Remember how many times he would say, this is what's going to happen. And the disciples would say, forbid it, Lord, that you would do this. Listen to Luke chapter 9, verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And they said, yeah, why? Why would you have to do this? Jesus said, for his reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This charge I received from my Father. And that's exactly what he did. He laid down his life on the cross, and then he took it back through his resurrection. So you see him, the the truth-telling Lord. And then he's also the sin-bearing Savior. So we think of who he is and what he's done. Let's think about this. We saw this last night in the Garden of Eden. Right? So you, if, you, if you're, you're talking with your neighbor or your family member and they're trying to figure out what's wrong with the world because everybody knows there's something wrong with the world. And you look at the issue in Genesis and you see Adam and Eve rebel against God. They, instead of honoring God and worshiping Him as God, they turn away from Him and they listen to the serpent and they eat the fruit that they shouldn't have eaten. And God judges them. And you see in Genesis... At the end of chapter 3, He expels them from the Garden of Eden. Right? He, he tells them, basically, get out. 
You can't stay here. And puts the angels to guard the entrance back into the Garden of Eden. So they're, they're separated. They're out. They can't, they can't be in there. That is an expression there of, of alienation or separation from God. And, and Christ comes to go get the refugees that are out and to bring them back to God. But how does He get those refugees? He has to bear the sin and bring us back to Him. So it's that alienation language that you see over and over again in the Bible that He brings us back. And that's what what Christ does. He he takes those that are alienated and separated. He brings them back to God. As 1 Peter says that Christ suffered in the flesh, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. That's what He's doing. He's taking those who are separated in bringing us to God. And, and just think about this. I just want you to see the, the necessity of this. This was something for me in my conversion that was, was, a, uh, was a remarkable change. And it, it brought a tremendous amount of relief. See if you can identify. So I grew up Roman Catholic uh, going and not really a, a faithful Catholic. Just went to the church, did what I was supposed to do. And, and really didn't have categories of understanding. But when I was under a heavy conviction of sin, I was going to the priests and asking them questions. Like I was the annoying guy after Mass. I have a question, I have a question, I have a question. And they they listened and they tried to help. And, but the, the advice they kept giving me was, go to confession. Go to Mass. Pray. Stop sinning. Just all of these things. So I said, okay, great. You're the guy. You're the priest. I'm, I'm the guy that needs help. I'll do it. And I kept going back saying, it's not doing it. And then finally, I would ask the question and said, what, how does this work? Like, how does it functionally work that my sin actually just goes away? And he said, well, that's the way because God loves you. And I'm saying, well, it doesn't work like that in any other aspect of the world where just because somebody loves me, my debt's gone. Because at the same time, you tell me that God is holy. That means He hates sin, right? And you tell me that God is just and He's going to punish sin. I mean, we believe in hell. So how can God say that He loves me and He's going to forgive me, but at the same time, still be uh, wrathful and holy? And what I was struggling with, I wouldn't have put it in these terms, but as I look back on it, I was struggling with this theology of schizophrenia. My theology was that God was almost schizophrenic. Like, he can move over here and be loving, but over here he's going to be wrathful. And it works out good for me because I believe he loves me, but these people over here, they're going to get the bad end of the deal. And, and that worked for a little bit, but it, it just drove me crazy thinking about it to the point where I just said, I'm done with this whole thing. It's got a logical hole in it. That I can't, this is a rotten banister. I can't put my weight on this thing. It's going to go. It's going to cave. And that's when I sought out a guy and he showed me in the book of Romans that through the Gospel, God is the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Look at that verse in Romans 3. What a glorious passage. Romans chapter 3. Verse 26. 
It's in that same section we're familiar with for all of sin. Verse 23, and fall short of the glory of God. And then verse 26, he explains that through the work of the cross was to show his righteousness, that God demonstrates his righteousness at the present time through the gospel and even forbearance of sin. So that, here's the purpose, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, my issue in my situation, and I think a lot of people walk around with this tension either acknowledged or completely ignored. This this tension, I was okay, or, or at least the person, the priest that I was talking to, was okay with him being the justifier. My hang-up was with the just part. You see what I'm saying, right? How can you be the just and the justifier? How can you maintain your justice and still forgive my sin? How can you not compromise as God? How can you say you love me and still love your glory and be holy? This this contradiction within the very essence of this kind of Jesus forgives, Jesus loves stuff was, was, was an absolute stumbling block for me. But you see, through the Gospel, God is both just and the justifier. Now listen to what He does. In order to forgive sin and show His love, He has to satisfy wrath and demonstrate His holiness. So here's Jesus. He is perfect in our place. He's the God-man. He obeys God's law perfectly. Loves God. Loves neighbor. Does everything we're supposed to do perfectly. And then He goes to the cross and He pays the penalty for our sin. So that on the cross, Jesus bears our sin. God charges the infinite eternal debt that I owe, that you owe. He charges it to Jesus. And when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer theologically is, I am charging all of Eric's and all of the Christians who would ever believe, I'm charging all of their sin to you, my son, so that I can take all of your righteousness and charge it to them. It's the great exchange. So that through the gospel, God is now just to look at me. He's not overcoming his righteousness. He's demonstrating his righteousness. Because God treated Jesus the way I deserve, He's able to treat me the way Jesus deserves. It's the exchange. So you see how this works. Righteousness satisfied. God is just to forgive us. Justifier. He declares us righteous on Christ's behalf. Isn't that amazing? So you see how that just, if Paul goes on to say, where is there any boasting? Where is there any bragging? Where is there any greatness? It's gone. We boast in Christ because through Christ, God is the just and the justifier. And you see how that comes together in your, in your mind and it just melts your heart of pride to know that God would save one like me. He would put His Son forward to be the, the wrath-bearing, sin-atoning substitute. And I think if you can, particularly with, with Roman Catholics or anybody else that's, that has this sense of of attempting to do as much as they can do to earn God's favor. And it's not just religious people. People believe in salvation by recycling. 
too. I mean, right? Save the planet, I'm going to go to heaven. So it's anything we're doing to combine with what God has done, that, that concept of just in the justifier is so helpful for people to see. Because it's only in the Gospel. And by the way, it's the only world religion that maintains righteousness and love. Everybody else kind of diminishes down holiness or righteousness and accentuates the love. It's amazing. So, that's who Christ is, the sin-bearing substitute. And finally, He's the, the, the only way to God. We know these verses from John chapter 14, verse 6, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. He didn't say, I am a way, a truth, and a life. No, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 And let's just think about this. If there are other ways of salvation apart from the Gospel, why would Jesus command His disciples to go evangelize? If there's another way to do it, why would He tell us to go and to do this? Because this is, this is the hard stuff. Forsake everything. Be willing to die for Him. Reorient your life around Jesus and His commands and forsake it all and come to Him. And if you don't, there's judgment to pay. Why would He tell us to go tell other people that if that wasn't the only way? Also, if there was another way to heaven, didn't God make a horrible mistake by putting Jesus on the cross? If you could be saved by being a moral person, what a horrific thing to do to put Christ, the glorious God-man, perfectly honorable, loving, never did anything wrong even for a fraction of a second, never bitter, rude, or selfish, perfectly honorable in all ways. And He suffers the shameful scorn of Calvary. For what? One of many options. What a, what a horrible idea. The only reason why He did that is that's the only option. It's the only way. The exclusivity of Christ. The Bible's declaration is broad. All have sinned. But the answer is narrow. Christ is the only way. So as Christians, we want to be clear with who Jesus is. Now let's think about who we are. That's who, who Jesus is. There's more we could say, but let's think about who we are. I'll tell you a story. I was um, visiting with a guy who was a missionary to the Dominican Republic. Great story. The guy was a very successful businessman in Omaha and really felt God's call on his life to go be a missionary. So he learned Spanish, moved his family, his wife to the uh, Dominican Republic, planted a church, and is doing this work down there. So he come back to Omaha. He's talking to different pastors and visiting and and I actually met this guy right after I got converted when he was a businessman. And then we reconnected. So, great story. And I'm having coffee with him. And I said, Bill, what is, what is the greatest hindrance to you in the work of missions in the DR, in the Dominican Republic? And he took a sip of his coffee and he, his answer surprised me. He said, other missionaries. I said, well, that's a silly thing to say. Right? I'm thinking, what, what do you mean, Bill? And he said, uh, no, uh, particularly missionaries that come from Western countries. They come to the Dominican Republic and they view it as club med, like a, a vacation. 
He said they, they go to the beach. They, they rarely serve in the church. They kind of just hang up in their houses. They look down upon the locals and kind of, kind of mock them in some ways. It's kind of a, a judgmental. You're completely disengaged. And they're just down there basically collecting a check. And go, now, not all missionaries, obviously, are there, but the ones he's dealing with in Santo Domingo. And I said, well, surely, do they, do they help in the church ministry? Are you having, no, you know, largely it's difficult to get people engaged in the ministry. And I'm listening to him. I'm thinking, what, what a horrible thing. Because if those guys sponsor churches, if those sponsor churches found out that these guys are just basically kicking back at the beach, building sandcastles, and, you know, eating tacos and enjoying themselves, rather than engaging people in the ministry of making and training disciples, they'd probably be very upset and they'd probably like pull their support back or have a, have a firm conversation with them. But they're just, just going about their thing. They're not doing their job. And that would be what people would want them to do is you need to do your job. But as I sat there and listened to them, I started to feel really convicted. Because I began to see myself as that missionary. Sure, I'm not in a foreign land. Well... Omaha is kind of foreign, but, but I can kind of see myself being evangelistically apathetic on occasion, kind of just mailing it in, just taking care of my family, spending time with my family, maybe even identifying with a little bit of ridicule of the locals, some progressive political views, foolish decisions that are being made. Disregard for God, oh, you don't want to go to church, you want to do this, you want to do that. Kind of look down my pious, self-righteous nose at him. And even become cynical and kind of um, get in the way of the mission of the gospel going forward in the local church. You see how we can just, we can basically be like that. And I'm reminded that I'm called to be a missionary. Just like those that go to the Dominican Republic. Yes, they, they leave the country and they're going to that island, but I am here. And I am called to reach people with the gospel. We looked at this last night. Matthew 28 is clear. All of us are missionaries. Are we guilty of a similar type thing of disengaging from the work that we're called to do? Are we just kind of sitting on the proverbial beach waiting for Jesus to come back? Now, as I say that, it's convicting to me. And what I want you to just, as you struggle with who, who we are as Christians, I want you to let that story challenge you a bit on your, in terms of your identity. Do you think like a missionary? And do you live like a missionary? We'll get to some of this in a little bit. The Bible teaches us that, we, that God is building a new family through the work of Christ. God is building the church. So He takes people from outside the world, and he brings them in to this new family, the church. And the people uh, in the church are made up of different backgrounds, different experiences, but really have the same story. You have the same history, sin, salvation from God, uh, sin and separation from God. You have the same conversion. God, by His grace, gives you life and light, and you see and you worship. And you have the same future. You're going to the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness will dwell and you dwell with all the people of God throughout history. So we're all going the same way. 
So that again, again brings you a great uh, bit of unity of purpose and identity and mission. So just asking yourself this, this morning, just think, do you see yourself as a missionary that's been sent? Do you see your identity as one of a missionary? Do you think of your neighborhood as a mission field for you? And then I would ask, how well do you think you're doing living as a person who's sent? Some of you have unbelieving family members, unbelieving neighbors, unbelieving co-workers, perhaps even unbelievers come to your churches on Sunday. How are we doing with our orientation as missionaries? You know, the enemy of a missionary family is, is selfishness. The enemy of mission becomes selfishness. Let's think about this and, and think about how, how hard this is to swallow when we think about it. Because the heart of the, the gospel is selfless love. Right? Jesus gives himself away for us. God gives the most costly gift that He could give Christ. And He gives Himself away for us. So if we're going to live like Jesus, we have to live as people that give ourselves away. But the enemy of living like Jesus is selfishness. Because Jesus never lived a selfish second of His life. His whole existence is selfless. So when we don't obey God's Word and serve others because we want to, that's selfless. Selfish. Remember, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, verse 15. And I got to think that part of that commandment, kind of the, the category of commandments, would include the Great Commission. So a church in general can be in sin by not prioritizing the Great Commission. And individual members can be disobeying what God's called them to do at the very front of it by not working at evangelism. I mean, let's just, you, that might be a shocking thing to think about, but let's just think. Would it be sin to not pray? God calls us to pray. Would it be, is it sin to not attend worship gathering, regular worship? Yeah. Hebrews 10.25, don't forsake the public assembly. We see that. Is it is it sin to not love your wife, husbands? Of course, it's a command in the Scriptures. All right? I mean, we go all the way down the list. This is clear. But we don't think of evangelism that way. But yet, it's all over the place that we're called to be actively in the mission of evangelism. If, if you and me, if we're not living as missionaries sent, then ultimately it comes down to two cords of selfishness. On one, we don't love God like we should, and we don't love people like we should. Because if if I love God like I ought to as a Christian, then I am going to be jealous for His worship, jealous for His glory. I'm going to want God to be honored, and I'm going to look around and say, This city, this area does not love 
God. It doesn't worship Him. They're stealing from God. They're not giving to God. And that, as a Christian, that, that breaks my heart more than anything. I mean, just think, husbands, what would you do if, if you're in public and somebody were to say something uh, mean or disparaging to your wife? I mean, that's, we're, we're going to have a talk with that individual, right? But think about the, the reality of even above our relationship with our spouses is our love for God and his, our Savior, the Spirit of God. Or we, we think of Christ not being honored and we just kind of, nah, it's their choice. At the heart, we've got to be like Paul who went into Athens in the Spirit. His Spirit was provoked within him because the city was full of idols. When we look at Athens today in the British Museum and watch National Geographic and we look at the, the beautiful things that they have happened there. But Paul walked around and he's like, this is horrible. They worship all these gods and they don't worship the God of heaven. They're stealing glory from Him. And he's provoked. He was agitated. But then there's also love for people, which is the heart of what, it, what the law is, to love God and love people. And to look upon people and to, and to not want them to have the best. Not want them to have true joy, have true happiness, and true love. It, it becomes a selfish thing. Because we don't want that because it's going to make us uncomfortable when we have those conversations. Because they might, as Brandon was saying last night, they might think you're weird. They might ostracize you. It might be the end of relationships. It could be any number of things. I think if we boil that thing down all the way down to selfishness, then we can begin praying forward and working forward to try to get past it, to reflect the gospel. A church member recently asked me, he's, we were having breakfast one day, and he's like, okay, I get this stuff. I get it logically. I even It moves the meter emotionally. It moves my heart. But I, I don't know how to put it into practice. So he said to me, he's like, how can I live as a missionary where, where I am? I live in a residential neighborhood and uh, just a kind of a, he lives in a garage community. So people come in, put their car in the garage, go in the house, and then they go on their back deck in the backyard so they don't interact in the front at all, right? That's where this guy lived. And, and he worked uh, in an architectural firm and it was a lot of movement. Things are moving around real fast and not a lot of time to talk. And he's just saying, how do I, how do I live as a missionary here? So I just started asking him some questions. I said, instead of telling you what to do, I'm going to ask you what to do. I said, let's just say, um, if you were going, to, if 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 you were going to be a missionary to Europe and you got the same situation, same job, same neighborhood, same everything, what are you doing if you're moving into Europe? What changes would you make if you were living in a foreign country? You're given a job, you're given a house, you're given a mandate to be a missionary. How are you going to spend your time? How are you going to pray? You're going to read the newspaper. You're going to look at your community. What are you going to think of your neighbors? How are you going to talk to the cashiers when you check out at the grocery store? How are you going to interact with people uh, in, the, in, in the parking garage as you're walking to and from? How are you going, what are you going to be listening for in your community? How are you going to be thinking? Right? So for this guy, he's like, hey, this is my, my house. I've lived in this house for 20 years. I've had this job for 15 years. I just go to and fro. I wave to this neighbor. I talk to this person. I go in. He's not thinking like a missionary at all. He's thinking as 
a guy that's comfortable. Let's say, well, what would it be different if you were a missionary to a foreign country? You would absolutely be listening to people, interacting with people. The gospel's on your mind. And you'd say, well, why? Because it's your job. That's what you're supposed to do. So, so now you're, you're, you're in the break room and you're listening to conversations. And there's the co-worker whose son is in high school and he's having all kinds of problems. He's getting into all kinds of trouble. And she's saying, I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what to do. And instead of saying, wow, tough luck and walking off, might turn around and say, I'm re- I couldn't help but overhear what's going on. I'm really sorry to hear that. I'm a Christian. Can I be praying for you? And that might turn into a great conversation. Or I have a teenage son. I've gone through some tough times. Is there anything particularly? I mean, you're, you're trying to talk. You're trying to open the door. Instead of just walking off and saying, be warm and be filled. Or trying to be nice in conversation. So here's here's an example of something. I was at the gym uh, two weeks ago, and uh, me and my friend, he's a seminary student, so we're, we're working out of the gym. We're talking about we're talking theology and life, and it's exciting all the stuff we're talking about. And we've been praying and talking to different people at the gym for for a long time. But even sometimes you kind of get into this um, relaxed mode and doing what you're doing and. This guy comes over and he says, hey, can I have a spot? So my friend grabs, runs over there, gives him a spot. He's lifting weights. And he gets done and we're talking to this guy. And, and I tell him I'm a pastor and he's listening and I'm asking him a few questions. And my whole goal is to get this guy to go to lunch with me. Like if I can just get him out of the gym, go to lunch, sit down and talk, it would be great. So I asked him, eventually I said, hey, would you mind having lunch sometime? We go, go talk. We go have lunch, sit down and talk. I think it was Tuesday, right before I left to come out here. Great conversation. And the guy's like, you know, I've been thinking about reading the Bible. I just don't know where to start, what to do. I've been starting Genesis. I can't get very far. I don't know what to do. I, I said, hey, let's do a Bible study in Mark. Would you be up for it? He said, yeah. So we're going to start a Bible study next Tuesday, every week, reading through Mark and, and going through it. I mean, that conversation could have gone a lot of different ways at the gym. It could have been, yep, no problem. See you later. Nice to meet you. But you, you think like a missionary. You want to take that a next step. Let's talk some more. Let's go. Hey, would you be up for getting together sometime? I'm downtown often. We can have lunch, right? Just those opportunities. Sometimes you have to, to make those. Again, thinking as a missionary. I'm trying to think of something else on that. Yeah, look at a couple of the verses. So two two verses to, to to push on. One is Matthew 28. I'm just going to read that again and reference it. But flip over to John chapter 20, verse So again, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Then John 20, 21, where Jesus says to them, His disciples, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
Now I want you to think about that for a second. That's kind of John's version of the Great Commission. So God is a, a missionary God. Let's put it that way. He sends Jesus. Jesus does what He is supposed to do. He lives and He dies. And he raises from the dead. And now Jesus is saying that he's going to send, God's going to send His disciples. And we know that the Father and the Son send the Spirit. And the Spirit gives us new life. Causes us to be born again. And then indwells us. And leads us. And directs us. And we live as Christians under submission to the Spirit. But we are living as people that are sent. So God, who sends the Son, sends the Spirit. And then He sends His people to the nations and the neighbors to, to reach them with the gospel. So again, it's right at the core of our identity. So oftentimes as Christians, we need a reorienta- reorientation of our thinking back to the basics of identity and calling. What if you're a missionary is not a hypothetical question. You are missionaries. What are you doing? I was telling Brandon this on the way in. He said I should, I should share the story. So I'll, I'll tell you this brief story. We were we moved into this, this neighborhood that we're in currently. I mentioned a little bit last night. And as we're praying about it and thinking about coming into that neighborhood, we're thinking, how can we live as missionaries in this neighborhood? Uh, it's an interesting little spot in the middle of Omaha. And what we decided to do uh, after praying was just to, to walk around, talk to people, and listen. And, and try to find out what people get excited about what kind of builds this community together, who's in the community, what do they love, what do they do. So we saw right away that they love Nebraska football, so they they watch it a lot. So there's not a lot of activity during it. They love to walk. They love uh, their animals. So I could walk down the street with six kids and get no comment. I walk down the street with my boxer dog. Oh, what a cute dog. I'm like, I I have humans. (laughs) Humans. So I could just see that family is not a huge priority. Uh, there's a lot of same-sex couples. Strangely, in Omaha, you might be surprised. So people walk down the street holding hands. No big deal. Um, there's a lot of uh, alcohol and partying. So we see all this stuff, and the neighbors get together. And we're just watching and listening. And there's everybody you talk to had this tremendous amount of pride in the neighborhood. Like, we didn't get destroyed like that neighborhood over there. We maintained this for 120 years. We keep it strong. We fight the city when they want to tear stuff down. You know, real strong homeowners association. So I had this idea, after praying about it, that I was going to uh, reach out to the homeowners association and say that, I would say, I like to write. I have some ideas for communication in the neighborhood. And I put together a communication plan. And I said, I'll manage your social media. I'll write a newsletter. I'll interview people in the neighborhood about the neighborhood and, and write it. And they were like, wow, that's a great idea. And they like total blessing. They write this thing up. Get, I'm the new newsletter guy and all this. And they're excited about it. Uh, go to these meetings. And the meetings have like 100 people there. And they eat cheesecake and talking and and they're saying, here's the new communications guy. He's going to be interviewing you. And I'm saying, I'm like, this is awesome. And so we go schedule these meetings, go sit in the house and talk with them. And just to give you one, one story that I got to, to, to have, this guy emails me and says, hey, I'm, I'd like to do an interview. Can we do it for the upcoming newsletter? I said, sure, no problem. 
and schedule the meeting Saturday afternoon, walk Bo and Zoe, we're, we're going on a walk, hot day, show up at the house, and I'm like, this is a really decorative house, I'm really surprised all the flowers on it, you know, and I'm like, well, whatever, it's nice, go in, think nothing of it, go in, and there's the guy, and there's his partner, right, and he's a florist, so everything's flowers everywhere, right, and, and go in, I'm like, oh, this will be interesting, uh, so we go in, we sit down, and Bo and Zoe, they're having their, their water, and they're at the table talking, and I get through all the stuff, and then finally I just say, hey, guys, this, because I told him I was a pastor, and as soon as I said I was a pastor, it was this, you know, just really, really, I don't want to talk, and I said, I said, hey, this is pretty interesting. I'm guessing you haven't had a pastor at your dinner table recently, right? And they're like, no, of course not, and I was like, well, I haven't really got to sit at a dinner table with a same-sex couple in, in, ever, so this is cool for me, too. Uh, what do you say we have a conversation? Let's just talk. And they're like, okay. And so we, we from there, I just asked them, what do they think about evangelicals? And they told me what they thought. They were a bunch of mean, angry, bigoted people. I said, wow, that's interesting. That sounds kind of angry. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we talked through and went through. I got to share the gospel with them and, and learn a ton about them. We had email dialogue. I would love to say I baptized him last week and he's a deacon now, but that's not true. But I think there's just th- these opportunities as missionaries to be praying for, for this guy and this family and these people and, and thinking about that. But I wouldn't have had the opportunity to sit at that guy's house if, if we don't think on the front end, let's have a strategy for this neighborhood, for these people. And I think I would just encourage you that there's more opportunities there than you might realize. If you spend some time with a notebook and some prayer and a pencil and just think, how would I do this? And I'll tell you, if you're from Westgate, Brandon would love to go to lunch with you and strategize a plan to try to reach people in your neighborhood and just things to be praying for. Uh, Because the opportunities are there. And people are pretty open, surprisingly, um, to talking. Uh, so, if you, if you, one thing that I would like to do, I don't know if you guys have pencils but, or pens, but just somewhere on your program, I've, a couple of things I would ask you to do. Number one, think of five unbelievers you know right now. If there's three, there's only three, then that's fine. If there's only one, that's fine. But family members, neighbors, whatever. Just write them down. And then what you probably want to do is consider how you can prayerfully and thoughtfully bring the gospel to them. So you want to begin praying for them. And then you want to think about how you can bring the gospel to them. Maybe that's have them over for dinner. Maybe that's going fishing together. Maybe that's going for a walk. I mean, there's anything you can do where you can connect with those people. It's funny, you make a list like this. When I worked at Mutual of Omaha, I used to have a list of people that I was praying for and uh, in the office, and I called it Hit List. (laughs) Dumb way my mind works, but it was Hit List. And, and And I wrote their names down. And I kept it under my keyboard in my office. So one day, something was wrong with my computer. I had no idea. The IS guy came in. And what does he do? He just slides it forward the way he wants to. And 
there's the hit list. Look at my boss's name, the vice president's name, you know, all co-workers and, and looking. And, and I just saw the piece of paper. And I, told, I was like, um, I'm a Christian. I'm praying for them, and I want to see them converted. And he's like, whatever, man. You know, he's like, he's like crazy. So, I, you know, I got to talk to him about the gospel there, but it was just a, a very strange, strange situation. So, so make a hit list. Maybe call it something else, but make, make a list that you can be praying for, praying through it, ask other people, and, and make some practical things that you can think of that would help you to live as a missionary. Maybe it's something in your uh, recreation or family time with hospitality, um, hobbies, any number of things. All right, well, let's... Let's move on to the way that, um, well, it's 9.45. Can we go to 10, Brandon? This is the longest one of the day. All right. I think this is an important one for us to get. Um, How do we think about those who do not know Jesus? All right. So if you think about the people that you have had the opportunity to talk to about the gospel, uh, the the responses that you get kind of either fall on the pendulum between condescension or ambivalence, right? It's kind of condescending, oh, you're a Christian, or maybe the arms crossed, the eyebrows kind of give the high five, you know, like, oh, weirdo, you know, you get that. Or it's it's ambivalence, like, I really don't care what you do and who you are and what you're about. Um, and so that might give us the false notion that when we look at unbelievers that they're not as smart as we are. Like we're, we got it together, and they don't have it together. And we can begin thinking, like, hey, how do they, how do they uh, think like that? How do they live like that? And we can begin to get really self-righteous about it, and we can become condescending towards them and even ambivalent towards them. Oh, those dumb whatevers, unbelievers. Oh, I don't even think about them. They're just doing it. They're, they're on their own. They're getting what they deserve. And we can become ambivalent and condescending towards them. So we would end up lacking the love that we're called to show towards unbelievers. And I think it's uh, particularly difficult, uh, as, as in the last, say, 10 to 15 years, that the moral revolution has gone so fast, and particularly here. I think, wasn't this the first state to legalize gay marriage? 2003, right? So... So in you guys' face, there's been just kind of a, a the flag, so to speak, has been waved. And it's it's a particularly uh, in-your-face sin. And, and, and proponents of the moral revolution tend to be, well, not all, but some loud and obnoxious. And it kind of gets into, they get the cultural momentum at the back and it just becomes this thing. And you, and you could just say, you know, I'm, I'm sick of it. I'm just, uh, it's repulsing, and I'm not even going to wade into it. It's filthy, and, and and go, and it is bad. But I think that might be the wrong response for us. So what we want to think about is the fact of of their condition. So those who are unbelievers, we need to think of them as hungry and hurting, hungry and hurting. And so a couple passages I want to go through just briefly here is Ephesians chapter two. And then Romans chapter 1, and then Matthew 9. So Ephesians 2. 
Paul's reminding the Christians who they were before conversion. He says in verse 1, and you, that's collectively the body of Christ, were dead. That's spiritually dead in the trespasses and sins. So you were dead in sin, spiritually dead, in which you once walked. So the pattern of life was a sin or a depraved life. You followed the course of this world that's calibrated by the world, following the prince and power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among them we among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here's Paul saying, Hey, let's not forget who we were. All of us. Nobody comes out of the womb saying, praise Jesus. Nobody is born worshiping God. Everybody is born depraved. And some people may have more loud uh, pronunciations of their depravity. Some people may have more culturally acceptable forms of depravity. Some may have more culturally repulsive forms of depravity. But let's make no mistake, we are all depraved and sinners. Apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins and transgressions. We follow after Satan. We are walking according to the course of this world. It's a worn out path since Genesis 3 that people have been walking on and we walk that path as an enemy of God. So right away we have to look at it. And Paul is doing something very strategic here. He's helping these Ephesians to remember who they were. So now when you open up the the globe on Sunday morning and you read through and you see what's going on or you watch the news on Sunday night or uh, tonight and you think about what's what's happening or you interact with your neighbor or your co-worker and you see what's happening. What does Ephesians 2 do for your understanding? Doesn't it cause you to identify with people a little bit? Sin is bad. Depravity is bad. It has all kinds of expressions. And whatever you see that as a Christian may repulse you or cause you to to be condescending or or maybe even to the place of ambivalence, you have to see that that is a, that is a, a pattern of what sin is. So we can identify. That's the point. Once that we were enslaved to sin moves us to compassion, we can identify with those in sin. In other words, you know why things are happening the way they are. It's not a mystery. It's not a mystery to see what's going on in the world around us. When marriages are breaking up and drug epidemics are on the rise and abortion rates through the roof and moral revolution and all these things that are happening that are on the newspaper every in the newspaper every day we know why this is happening it's not a surprise to us it's ephesians 2 but then there's an expression of the condition so that's the fact of it then there's the expression of it let's flip over to romans chapter 1 Romans chapter 1, verse 18. But he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
So here's what's happening. There's an active suppression of truth. God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. He says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he's going to go on to say, we know God. What can be known about God is plain to them. But there's a suppression of the truth. It's, it's holding it down. It's, it's trying to deny it. It's, it's like trying to take the beach ball and keep it under the water. You're, just, you're pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing. That's the active exertion of the unbeliever to take God's truth to accuse him by. It, it push and pushing and pushing it down. And we see that come out because God made people to be worshipers, but instead of worshiping Him, they worship creation. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. What he's saying is that God made us to be worshipers, but instead of worshiping God, we worship the creation. We worship ourselves, we worship technology, we worship money, we worship sex, we worship uh, entertainment, we worship control, we worship honor, we worship all these things. And it's a suppression of God's truth, but people are enslaved to it. And they're, they're spending their lives actively suppressing God's truth. It's an enslavement. So the condition, depravity, is expressed in terms of suppressing truth and worshiping stuff. And that's what happens. And then we have sympathy for the condition. Matthew 9. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, verses 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly for the, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. What does Jesus say about the crowds? Verse 36. He had compassion on them. Uh, in B.B. Uh, Warfield's book, The Person of Christ, he characterized all of the, the kind of the emotions of Christ in the gospel, and he found the number one was compassion everywhere. And you see it here. Jesus looks at them, and he has compassion on them it's it's over and over again and, and so i'd ask you what's behind compassion what's what drives compassion compassion is a reaction to people yeah love so when he says he has compassion on people he's saying he has love that is expressed in compassion he sees the need and wants to meet the need and and he gives the reason why he has compassion because of their plight look what it says they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd Harassed and helpless. That's They're harassed by false teaching and the empty promises. And they're helpless because they're defenseless against it. So that's the issue there in that context is the false teachers, the, the religious elite 
are getting people to do all these things and they're harassed by them and it doesn't bring anything and they're helpless because they can't defend against it. So we must look at unbelievers as hungry and hurting. Listen, when you hear the loud chorus in the culture of hatred of God or the church or or scorning Christianity or promoting any type of liberation or whatever we want to pursue, those are cries of 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 hunger. What they're saying is we want liberation, we want salvation. We're hungry. We've been eating and we're starving. Everything that they've built themselves, their lives upon is, is not sufficient. I mean, even listen to the great Tom Brady. What does he say? After he won the fourth Super Bowl, the 60 Minutes interview, he said the same thing before this year. So it was after third Super Bowl, Ed Wallace interview, and then before this year he said the same thing. It's an amazing quote. He just says, basically, I, I, got, it, I got money, wife, kids, house, reached the top of the game, and I look and say, there's got to be more than this. I, I love his honesty. There's got to be more than this. That's why he's building this foundation. He wants to do all this stuff with, with health and wellness and everything. He wants to make a difference. You can reach the top, the pinnacle of the, the American deity of the NFL for as long as he's done it. And he could say, bah, you know what? I thought it would be better. I'm still hungry. And the reality is that God made us to be worshipers of Him, so therefore when we worship things that do not satisfy, we have, an, we have guilt here within us. So we have guilt for, for doing what's wrong. So we're hungry, and then we're also hurting over here. We're hurting because we, we're, we feel the guilt, and then we run back over here to satisfy the hunger, and it's just this big, vicious cycle. It says, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2.13, they're drinking from broken cisterns. Can you imagine being incredibly thirsty and then trying to fill the cup? Or trying to find a cup, and then you find a cup, you scoop it up, and you bring it up to drink, and you're so thirsty, but the bottom's all rusted out, and all the water just comes out, and then you just keep doing it with the water, and it just keeps coming out, and it keeps coming out. There's nothing to drink. You never quench your thirst. The cup is always empty. Everything the unbeliever puts their trust in has holes in it. It can't deliver on its promises. As a result, the unbeliever remains hungry. And they're hurting. So when you look at people that are not yet Christians, you need to look the way Jesus looked, with compassion. He can look and see, I know that they are hungry and they're hurting. We'll we'll talk in a little bit about how to listen and effectively interact with that, but at the core, thinking about people that are hungry and hurting. And that brings about a burden. The burden for the condition. Are there, this just in final here, the burden for it. Are there people that you find difficult to imagine showing evangelistic concern for? I'll tell you one. For me, it was before, not anymore. Um, for me, as a dad with six kids, those who commit sexual crimes, sexual assault, I, I, I really have a hard time with that or had a serious, I have a hard time with the crime, still do, but the people that commit it. And I did prison ministry for years. And I would go in and preach in the prison. I would meet with guys in the prison. And one day, I was in the prison and a new guy came and nobody else showed up for the, the Bible study. And uh, I started talking with him, asking him questions. 
And what we normally do, you know, what are you in for? What are you doing? How can I help you with the gospel? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go right to the heart. Don't have a lot of time. And go. And this guy, total reservation, doesn't want to talk about it. And then finally, he said, I, I'm, a, I'm a sexual predator. And, and he admitted that he assaulted his children. And I, I know he saw. I just was like, sat back. I became furious, furious, and I went from wanting to serve the man with the gospel to wanting to punish him. I was like Jonah. I don't want to talk to them. Get me out of here. But within a short period of time, there was brokenness. And the brokenness came to me. I began to understand afresh as I talked to him and listened to him and had the Bible open to gospel passages before me, I realized freshly what I knew conceptually, that all expressions of sin come from the same root. There are various expressions of unbelief, but all sins come from it. This person that sat before me was a sexual sinner. But... Fornication, lust, adultery, homosexuality, pedophilia, they're all sexual sins. And the cure for the sexual sin is the gospel. And when I looked at this guy, and I see his eyes heavy with tears, and I see him just feeling the weight of guilt, and to think that I could look and say, I don't want to give you the gospel. Now, if Jesus were to look into that room, this guy's broken, and this guy's self-righteous. Where's the problem? Right? So I read the Bible with the guy, spent time with him, prayed with him, admitted it was difficult. And wouldn't you know, out of all the people that I've ministered to in prison, that guy is now out of jail. He doesn't have his kids. He's a member in a gospel-preaching church. He got a job. He even uh, came, he works for a garage door guy. And the guy, the guy's a, a businessman in the church, and he, he came and fixed our garage door. I see him on occasion. I interact with him. He's converted, got baptized. And I looked at him and I thought, this guy was a difficult person to show evangelistic compassion. But I'll tell you, God grew me through that, and it helped me to see that faithfulness in evangelism corresponds with burden for people. You've got to have a burden for people. If you're simply checking off the box on the checklist of what you need to do today, and evangelism is part of it, it's not it. There has to be a desire, again, for God to be glorified and for people to be reconciled to Him. So, Take it again. Who is Jesus? He's the glorious Son of God, the Savior, the resurrected King, who's the only means of salvation. Who are we? We as Christians are missionaries. Who are they? These are people that are hungry and hurting. And Jesus shows them compassion. Not by compromising the Gospel, but by preaching it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for, again, the Savior who fills us with joy as we behold Him in the Gospel and brings us conviction as we consider what it means to follow Him. Make us, Father, to be faithful 
men and women of the gospel, missionaries that endeavor to make your name known here in this area. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.